Hello and welcome to the Tunneling Podcast. This is part two of three in our mini-series made in partnership with Mott MacDonald, looking at how a mega-project gets delivered. In episode one, we learned the main challenges a project needs to get through to move from vision to reality. We covered how it justifies its funding, getting the engineering building blocks right, identifying threats to program early, and finally traversing the political arena and getting royal assent, approval from the Queen. You can listen to this episode as a standalone, but if you haven't listened to episode one and would like to do that first, feel free to pause. We'll wait. We don't mind. Otherwise, let's get into it. In this episode, we are looking at how clients join with industry partners to bring projects to life. We all know the traditional split. Clients pay the money, designers create the plan, contractors build the thing, and suppliers, well, they supply things. But with impossibly complex schemes such as mega projects, it is basically not possible for a client to have the competence to deliver on all the management responsibilities on its own. So it has to supplement its capabilities, either by pumping up its own team by rapidly employing dozens of new staff, or by portioning off areas of responsibility and handing them to a delivery partner. But before we look more closely at what a delivery partner actually is, here's Sama Ali from episode one, giving us a refresher on the demands placed on project owners. Sama is a transport project director at Mott McDonald, who works on projects in the delivery phase, both with clients and construction organizations. If you look at brand new infrastructure projects, that stems from an existing client. Uh, clients start with a small team, which starts nurturing that project, developing that idea uh, together with, with their partners. They look at the industry, they find the right partner who has the right expertise and the right experience, and they put a team together. And what the client does, they take a leadership role and they help in terms of defining the, the, the requirements, in terms of defining the vision, helping everyone develop the concepts that ultimately enable the client to meet its objectives. Delivering a railway, upgrading a road. And not all clients are the same, although there has been a trend towards leaner client structures in recent years. Meaning that even though projects are getting more complex, clients have less capacity to handle them. Some clients effectively are smaller than others, like a lot of the, the, the current clients are lean organisations, like you see some clients delivering uh, £50 billion infrastructure projects and they have an organisation which might be 700 to 1,000 people. Now you look at that number, effectively uh, the, 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 that number is not sufficient to do the end-to-end -end, uh, cycle if you like. So what the client does, they bring in the supply chain to help them in putting together a plan and then delivering that plan uh, through the project lifecycle. But it is important to have the information available to fully develop these concepts. One of the key risks which client might face in relation to the engineering is uh, the quality of the information available to develop the concepts and develop the, the, the infrastructure project at the very early stages. If that information is not sufficient, there is always a risk in terms of the, the, the concepts developed being effectively, uh, have, or the, the, there is risk on the cost and time associated with the, the, the concepts developed. 
And in his time looking at projects in the UK and around the world, Sammer has recognised that there are some client attitudes and behaviours which can help bring about successful delivery. I'd say there are some maybe enablers that could help um, the, 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 the clients become smarter, if you like. Some of them are like uh, looking at the procurement or the contracting approach. In our experience, the more successful contracting approaches are ones which reward outcomes, uh, the ones which help improve the dynamics between the contracting parties. Effectively creating the right behaviours and reducing confrontations so the team delivers on the objectives. With increasing project complexity and the diversity of teams involved, this is critical. Another enabler is looking at maybe a different approach to measuring project performance. Typically, we know project performance is normally measured via cost and time. And um, one thing which is worth asking ourselves is what if performance is measured via carbon, for example? Carbon can be related to resources and cost. And? And uh, the UK experience shows from the past decade that carbon and cost savings are uh, effectively correlated as a two-to-one ratio between the two, which effectively means if you manage to cut your carbon on a project by 50%, there, this could lead to a cost saving in the order of a quarter. So it's worth looking at different ways of measuring project performance. And it might help you towards your main project aims. Another enabler is uh, the effective use of data. Today, data is generated every step of the way. Most of the activities we do throughout the project lifecycle can generate digital footprint. It creates huge amount of data. What we want is meaningful data on project uh, that can provide us with insights, data that generates lagging indicators. Lag indicators for items that have fallen behind program but also generates forward-looking indicators, which would help the project, uh, which would help in measuring the project performance and uh, also would help in effectively intervening as and when needed. The construction industry is also starting to digitalize. And today, uh, data can be harnessed throughout the project lifecycle during the capital delivery phase and later on the asset management operation maintenance phase. Although infrastructure construction is still behind other sectors, this is changing rapidly. See episode number 98, The Construction Playground, for more information on the new tools available to projects, made possible through the expansion of sensorization, the development of computer vision technology, the proliferation of drones, connected tools, materials tracking, program visualization technology. But what exactly is a delivery partner? It's what the team are advocating as an approach to better delivery infrastructure projects. And now it's time to find out what that involves. Here is Michael Saville, who also joined us for the first episode. He's the practice lead for tunneling in the UK and Europe. No, it's, there is no concise definition or a dictionary uh, answer to delivery partner. A delivery partner is what you want it to be. And a client will decide where their, their own 
experience, strengths, capabilities and, and weaknesses are and where they need support. For example, a rail client will often be focused on the operating side of a transport system. They won't necessarily have experience at delivering large-scale uh, infrastructure projects and would look for a delivery partner to bring in that expertise. The client teams may not have so much international experience, for example, or, or, or experience of added value and innovation from around the world or technological developments. And a delivery partner will, will be able to bring that ideally. So it's filling the gaps and it's matching, matching and complementing a client team where they need it. So if it's not quite possible to put the delivery partner in a box and the industry support needed changes from project to project, client to client, how can a delivery partner spell out what they can offer? The services a delivery partner uh, can offer could almost be a menu uh, of what's needed. You're building a team that's fit for purpose. Now, the, the variety of roles can typically be in design and integration of design. And we see on many projects the importance of that. And, and ultimately, at the heart of a project, our, our technical understanding is key to getting it right. We have to have the right answer, technically. That answer needs to be assured, so there's plenty of uh, support in assurance and, and validation and verification. There'll be some clients that are very used to operating systems, transport systems or networks that perhaps haven't uh, embarked on significant contract management um, and procurement. And again, in that case, bring experience and capability from an area that is outside a project owner's typical focus. The supply chain management is relevant where a delivery partner can make recommendations for other partners and other expertise that might need to come in that is even beyond in, beyond uh, the delivery partner in, in, in specialist terms. A huge part of getting a mega project underway is the planning consent and the approvals that are needed, just as Mark Leggett told us in part one. The delivery partner will understand the constraints and the approvals that are needed and help guide through, for example, the environmental assessment that's needed, the, the proposed solutions, manage the undertakings and assurances that come out. Uh, we really successfully did that on Victoria Station Upgrade, where we needed to, 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 to look closely at the impact of a new station and new ticket halls was going to have in the Victoria area of London manage the road closures and the impacts on uh, passenger flows, both on the surface and underground for the, for the rail passengers. A lot of times the conventional idea of a delivery partner would be just in management and project controls. These, these major projects are undertakings that go on for years uh, and are hugely complex in their contract setups. They need a, a, a real expertise in how to manage multiple complex projects that are all underway at the same time. I'd say as well, uh, another vital part of where a delivery partner could fit in is understanding the testing and commissioning schedules, um, how that will come together. And really it's the culmination of what would have been years of planning, design, construction, needs to all come together in an integrated effort for testing and commissioning because the whole thing has to work, a transport system has to work as a system. And as with any system, it's only gonna be as good as the weakest link. So the testing and commissioning is a vital phase. The delivery partner 
really can help with how that's going to happen, the order in which it happens, the assurances that are needed and the sign-offs that are needed uh, to achieve that and get the end goal. Michael says that there are some competencies that are often said to be better retained by the client. For example, stakeholder management, but... To be frank, on a major, major transport system, the number of stakeholders is vast. The interfaces that they hold with the project are usually complex. And even, even clients, for example, Transport for London, which is used to having that, may need supplementary help in dealing with uh, stakeholders they haven't really engaged with before. Another person who has spent a lot of time developing the idea of a delivery partner is Liz Baldwin, who you might remember from episode 86, Enterprise Delivery, a Model for Recovery. Liz leads the Mott McDonald Foundations and Geotechnics team and formerly served 16 years in the Army in the Corps of Royal Engineers. My interpretation of delivery partner is that in essence what the delivery partner does is provide all of those kind of core skills that, that, that help the client deliver the overall project. Um, so those, those more niche things that might fall into, for example, you know, project controls and, and, and project and program management, it might also be stakeholder engagement. So it's those more, the, the tasks that maybe don't quite sit so readily with a consultant or with a designer, for example, or a contractor, for example, in a, in a project. Um, it's the, the delivery design partner that pulls all of that together, provides those resources and then coordinates delivery on behalf of the client. Liz says that over the years, we have seen clients become very slim. And, and, and as a result of them being very slim, it means they're also not necessarily so able to manage hub and, what I would call hub and spoke delivery. So where you're managing these multiple aspects of a project. Um, and actually clients have seen historically, therefore, that that incorporates a lot of risk to them to, to try and self-deliver. Um, often, because they're very lean, they will have had to grow their organisations much larger. They'll be bringing in people maybe with some niche skills they wouldn't necessarily have employed previously. And then that risk and responsibility for delivery sits firmly with the client organisation. And obviously, if it is a, a small organisation that's growing quickly, there's significantly more risk you know, involved with delivering it in that way. But this is not to say that Liz believes that all responsibilities should be passed off to another body. She believes there is a balance to be found and has a preference for alliancing. I am a, a real um, advocate of, of alliancing and, and, and actually working in a collaborative way. I would not, I'd be the last person to recommend that we should be pursuing an alliancing type contract for every contract that a client is letting, like any procurement, that we need to choose the right contract for the, the right project, for the level of maturity, for the size of the client. And there's lots of requirements that will feed into how a client might choose to procure a, you know, a particular activity. However, Liz does have two solid recommendations for success. One is, um, I think that you get the very best in delivery when you encourage all of the parties to work collaboratively. And that means the you know, that everything from the client, the delivery partner, to the, the designer, the contractor, any other organisations that you bring in, are encouraged to work in a way that just drives the, the best for project behaviours and that everybody wants the project to be successful. Part of that is just making sure that contracts align. 
So you don't want a delivery partner, for example, that's incentivized in a way that could drive negative behaviours in their dealings with the designer or the contractor, for example. It just needs a little bit of thought to make sure that all of those things point everybody in the right direction. I always liken it to a bit like an armada and you as the client are in the lead ship and you've hoisted the flags up. And then when you look back, you know, half the ships are following you, half have turned around and gone the other way and half have gone over there. Which seems to be the fate of just about every armada in the history books. And, and actually what it's, what it's about doing is in that, that clear communication via the contract, how you are asking all the parties to work together to achieve the best for project. And everybody working collaboratively, you know, aimed at that goal is, is the way to go. But while collaboration is important, it has to be genuine. But the second thing I also feel really, really passionately about is that you shouldn't pretend to collaborate when you're not really going to do it. So I feel really, really strongly that actually if, if you're not a particularly mature client around working collaboratively, even if that's to an, a traditional NEC3 contract, then don't try and pretend that you're going to work collaboratively with, with your supply chain. That is to say, you do still need to do all the things to ensure contracts don't work against each other. But actually, a lot of time and money and effort can be spent pretending to collaborate. And actually, in my experiences, it just breeds further mistrust and, 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 and actually isn't, a, isn't something to do on a best for project. I think most organisations would rather work collaboratively and really engage with it. Collaboration is a fashionable term, but if it is being done for the optics, just don't. So, so it's on vogue and it's added to everybody's contract saying, that you're, and, you know, you'll, you'll do a traditional NEC3, but maybe the parties will commit to signing a relationship management plan and, and we'll work together in a particular way. And a bit like anything else, like managing risk, if you don't do it properly. Then it becomes a negative. To facilitate good collaboration across different teams, you need to have the real leaders in key positions demonstrating the right behaviours. And Liz says this also means employing a lack of tolerance for people who are not behaving in a way that is acceptable. And it's regardless of the contract that you're employing. Everybody should be working, you know, in an open and honest way, best for project. We should be able to share when things go wrong and work together into how we can resolve them. And, and what you find is that the people that are put in place on some of those contracts are not the right people to work in a more collaborative arrangement. Leaders in an alliance need to be technically capable, which is important for key positions in any project, but they need to be able to get the best out of the people they work with. People who lead by example and inspire people to be open and honest. See episode number 81, Zen and the Art of Performance Management, for more information on the importance of a project culture where engineers are empowered to raise concerns and suggest courses of action. So those are the sort of behaviours. And a lot of people actually think that working collaboratively is a really, people talk often about it being, a, oh, that's the soft skills. And actually, it really, it really annoys me because actually it's hard work working in a collaborative environment. And actually what collaboration is bringing is that that, that high performing team where people work in it, all you're doing is creating an environment where people are not afraid to challenge, are not afraid to raise difficult questions. They're not afraid to say We've made a mistake here. They're not afraid to have those conversations. Problems are confronted, not allowed to fester. A project must not be allowed to become rotten on the inside, but fresh and green in outward appearance. When it comes to collaboration, 
best intentions are a good starting point, but the biggest concern surrounds risk. So I have a firm belief that risk should sit with the people best able to manage it. I believe that that's a key um, function of the delivery partner is to make sure that, that those, those discussions are being had with the client, but also with the delivery organisations you know, that you're working with on the project. Because you're lulling yourself into a false sense of security, I think, as a client or as a contractor or designer, to think that you've somehow pushed a risk onto somebody else. And, and actually, the, the risk management should mean that, that that risk does sit with the people best able to manage it. And sometimes that will be the contractor. Sometimes that will be the designer. Or that might be the delivery partner, or it will be the client. And I think part of good risk management is, is identifying those risks, but also, you know, making sure we're clear where that risk should sit. And, and my, my personal experience on the alliancing, I mean, a lot more risks sit with an alliance than would perhaps normally sit with a delivery organisation as part of a traditional contract. But even in that um, situation, you're still having the, 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 the upfront conversations about what the risk is um, and who then is best able to manage it. And, and that needs to be an open and collaborative process. And then the risk needs to be managed. The takeaway message from Liz is a sense of give and take between client and delivery partner, each complementing the other's strengths. I think ideal client behaviour actually is to have is to have a client that works hand in glove with a delivery partner and to the point that they're almost an integrated team and that actually the client where where they have the skills, they're, they're part of that delivery partner organisation and likewise the, the, the delivery partner organisation itself and almost those roles being awarded on a best for who's the best, most appropriate people to do that job. And actually, if that was always dealt with as, a, as the, if you like, the priority as to how the delivery partners are set up, they'd still all look slightly different for different clients because different clients bring different strengths, I think. But actually, I think working as part of that integrated team is really, is really important. And that for me is what an ideal client would look like. Um, is to work with the delivery partner to help deliver the project. And that is it for part two of our three-part exploration into the delivery of mega-projects. In the first episode, we looked at the initial project setup and some of the early challenges it needs to overcome. In this episode, we looked at the support it can find, ready and waiting in a mature industry. Join us next episode for the really juicy bit. Lessons learned from New York's East Side Access Project and London's own tunnelling juggernaut, the mighty Crossrail. All that to come in episode three. The Tunnelling Podcast is a production of Reby Media. Our producers are Alex Conacher, Bernadette Ballantyne, Rian Owen, Ross McPherson, John Young, Velo Mitrovic and Tim Sheehan. This episode was written and hosted by me, Alex Conacher. My co-host was Rian Owen. Script editing and series supervision by John Young. Sound engineering by Ross McPherson. And our own external support is Rory Harris. Special thanks to our episode and miniseries partner, Mott McDonald. Thank you for listening. You can find us on all podcast apps, on our website, tunneling.reby.media, and on LinkedIn.